everybody, welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is Joe Gray, the world champion mountain runner from Colorado Springs, Colorado, and one of the few African-American voices and athletes that we have in our sport. Joe is an incredible athlete. He's had an amazing career. I've followed him very closely since I fell into the sport more than a decade ago, and he's still at the top of his game, having won the World Mount Running Championship just last year in Patagonia. And as I mentioned, Joe is one of the few African-American representatives that we have in the sport right now, and he's a tremendous representative and a a voice for diversity in our sport. And he wrote an amazing article for Trail Runner, uh, which was published a couple of days ago, entitled No Change in Silence, where of course he is confronting this problem of systemic racism and police brutality, which has been going on for centuries and which we seem incapable of making real progress against. Hopefully this moment in history that we're living through now together is our opportunity. And I wanted to talk to Joe about that, what it's like to grow up as an African-American man in the US, his relationship with law enforcement throughout his life, how his parents taught him to approach life as an African-American man and how he is you know, leading by example for his own children as a father of two. It's great to chat with Joe. I regret that it's under these circumstances that uh, we finally got to chat. Uh, We did talk about his career and things at the end, including that World Mountain Running Championship from last year. And I, of course, try and prod him towards running some of the world famous ultra marathons, as I think everybody does who, uh, who talks to Joe. We all try and sort of push him towards the longer races, but he's an incredible athlete. He's a great guy. And I think uh, you guys will appreciate his timely, mature and valuable perspective. Hope you guys are all staying safe and uh, let's use this opportunity to get better. Joe Gray. Joseph Gray, welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's nice to see you. I see you too, man. Thank you for having me. <laughs> the miracle of modern technology. You're in uh, know. Colorado Springs. I'm here in Portland, Oregon. And I don't think we've ever really interacted in person, but I've been a longtime fan and admirer of yours. And yeah, though we, we haven't interacted much, uh, I followed your career really closely. We're roughly the same age, kind of got into it at the same time. And uh, really excited to have an opportunity to, to talk with you. And, um, you know, while I want to spend time talking about your career and sort of like what's made you such a great athlete for such a long time, obviously, we're also going through what feels like a pivotal moment in human history right now as uh, sure. race relations somehow remain a, a huge problem in our country after so many centuries. And you're one of the few African-American athletes uh, in our sport and um, a person who I think people like me have a lot to learn from and your voice is, is super valuable in our sport generally, but also, and especially, you know, in this moment. So to start, I want to just kind of open with a really broad question about like, what have, what's your emotional state and psychology been like over the last couple of weeks 
uh, with the, you know, racism that we've seen, the egregious stuff like the murder of Ahmaud Arbery and, um, and George Floyd, and then kind of the stupid everyday racism of the, the woman in the park who wouldn't leash her dog. Um, yeah. You know, take as much time as you want, but I, I just kind of want to open with your general feelings um, about what we're going through right now. Um, yeah, before that, I was going to say, um, you know, I've been a fan of yours as well. Uh, so it's pretty cool that when I got the message from you about, you know, coming on the pod and, uh, and also, you know, I was just thinking about like how, you know, the stuff you did with the prison system. And when, you, when you're in California, like, for me, that was huge. I was like, yo, this is a real dude right here. I, I like him. You know, he's, uh, yeah. he's selfless. And I, and I think that's important. Like we don't have a lot of selfless people in today's world. And, and that's globally. It's not just an American issue, but, um, so like hats off to you, man. Like that's major respect to you for that. Appreciate that. Um, but yeah, back to, I guess the state of my mentality right now, um, very much like many other um, people in my community, we feel like, like, damn, this is still going on. Like, we are still dealing with these same types of issues. It's kind of crazy to think. And it's like an open wound just keeps getting poked. Um, and then, you know, there, there, I think there's situations like, I would say being an athlete, I feel like I've had this privilege of people knowing me in my neighborhood, knowing me as an athlete and treating me as such. And so, I've been, especially in Colorado Springs, I can say, I can go running any time of the day and people don't look at me like, oh man, he's out breaking into stuff or stealing stuff or, you know, whatever. Um, but I remember there was a time where, you know, I lived in areas, different areas where um, people didn't treat me so kindly, where I was stopping because I was running at night. I had a job where I got off at like 930. And so uh, sometimes I'd have to run at like, you know, 950, 10 o'clock yeah. at night. And in nice neighborhoods because I didn't drive home first. <laughs> um, and so there was a couple times I got stopped and the cops like, hey, what's going on? It's like, I'm running. Clearly, I got running <laughs> shoes on. I look like I'm running. What you think I'm out here doing? Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it was interesting. But thinking back on the situation with, with Aubrey, I was thinking like, man, um, the fact that these guys felt justified in stopping him because they assumed he was doing something wrong and had their weapons out and everything. And I was just thinking like, damn, that could happen to me. Like I travel a lot. I run sometimes at weird times of the day and, I, and it kind of scared me. I never thought about it before, but I was like, damn, someone could be like, someone could just roll up on me and say, Hey man, we think you were stealing over here. Um, and just run me over or something. And it's like, dang, like that's where we are right now. Like you can really get away with something like that and not go to jail immediately for doing something like that. So it is depressing, I guess, to, to, to make a long story short, it's, yeah. it's depressing. I'm, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm definitely, like, upset. I'm frustrated, you know. Um, I feel like it's pushing me to action. Like, it's almost pushing me to want to get into politics because I realize yeah. policy is, is a big part of change. You know, mm -hmm. like, we can protest, we can kneel, we can do all that stuff. But in the end of the day, if we're not changing policy, if we don't have people you know, in situations to make change the policy, then nothing will change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And it's just wild to think that that's something that someone like you would actually have to think about of like, if I had go running after dark, right. what if somebody sees me and because I'm a black man out running, <laughs> you know, they could have some inherent 
fear or bias based on nothing but ignorance and their reaction to that could be violence towards me. And of course, you don't right. have anything to protect yourself when you're out <clears throat> nah, when you're out I, running. But I damn sure thought about like um, <laughs> bringing heat with me if I'm like, yeah. if I got to run at a weird time of day, I'm like, man, should I have some with me? I, yeah. like, I never would have thought in the past that I should. But like now I'm definitely starting to question it. You know, if I'm being honest, I'm like, man, uh, I don't know, maybe I should have some. Which is just so damn sad. So what about like the, uh, the protests and stuff in response? What's your sort of emotional psychological reaction to that? Um, you know, honestly, I, I've lost a lot of faith in, um, society, you know, because I've experienced racism and we can touch on that more later, but, um, seeing so many people come together, um, to promote equality and, and protesting, um, police brutality against, you know, black Americans, seeing white people, uh, Hispanic, Asian, everybody coming out in support of the situation and protesting. I'm talking about the peaceful protesters, by the way, not the yeah. leaders. I think, you don't, you yeah. don't have to, you don't have to have that caveat. I, every reasonable but person you know, you in the world. To. Yeah. I mean, you but yeah. reasonable, you got to remember, there's not, there's a lot of people <laughs> who are not reasonable. Like right. just take a glance uh, on social media. It's uh, not, it's not across the board. I, I'm but, so, I'm so just out of patience for those people right now that I just uh, <laughs> feel just absolutely compelled to, you know, yeah, not uh, do anything to placate that kind of ignorance, but I'm sorry yeah. to cut you off. Um, you can't really you know, speak to that. I mean, right. those people, if they think that way today after statistics and um, no. many examples have been kind of put out there in the media, even if you just watch Fox News all the time, they yeah. are even forced sometimes to show you that there are issues now. They might not admit it on a regular basis, yeah. but it's out there. So you can't be oblivious. Mm -hmm. So if you still are in support and you still are trying to deny what's going on, then it's like, I can't help you. Right. <laughs> So kind of going back to when you were a kid, I think you grew up in the Northwest, if I'm not mistaken. Did you grow up in, in um, a different, sorry. I, so I lived, uh, we kind of lived everywhere. I was a military brat. So uh, my dad was stationed in Kentucky. Um, we went overseas during a uh, desert storm. So our family uh, was living in Germany at the time for a few years. Mm -hmm. And then we came back to Washington. And so, yeah, for most of my life was spent, or most of my uh, school years were in Washington State. So did you grow up in a, in a diverse community? Of course, the state of Washington's not that diverse of a state. Um, and like, when do you recall like the first time your parents kind of had to talk to you about what it meant to grow up as a, as a black man in, in the U.S.? Yeah, so where I live, um, it, ironically, I mean, it, Obviously, there's not a ton of black people, right? Mm -hmm. But it was very diverse. Like we we grew up around everybody. Like mm -hmm. when I was younger, when I was a kid, I think about middle school, elementary school. Like there was no derogatory terms. Like we didn't yeah. make, we didn't call white people derogatory terms. They didn't call us. It was more so about uh, sports and things like like mm -hmm. you know. And and if you got into a fight, it it really wasn't because he was white or he was black. It's like we just got into fights you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, we, it was pretty diverse, but in terms of like how my family raised me when to deal with, uh, raise, you know, coming up as a black person in, in this country, they never really instilled fear in me until I want to say the first time that I got in trouble and the police were there, 
it wasn't me actually. So I was pretty young. There were these older kids I was hanging out with and they started a fire, like fireworks or something. I don't know what they was doing. And I, you know, I was fascinated. And so the police came and they just gathered up everybody who was around. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a little kid at the time. And, and I do remember my parents, you know, letting me know, Hey, when, when the police come, you be quiet, you be respectful, you know what I'm saying? You keep your head down. You don't, don't stir the pot. You know, basically if you don't know what to say, then you be quiet and you wait until mom and dad get there. You know, they were very quick to let me know, don't do anything out of pocket when yeah. the police are there, you know? So, or if you, if you, if you know they're coming, you need to go home, go away yeah. from a situation. So they were very, you know, specific about that. And, you know, when I was young, my brother was older than me, so he understood police brutality more so than I did. I did not understand that. Like in that situation, right. It could have went completely left when I was a kid. They could have said that I was the one who did it. And I think ultimately that's what they try to do, but they found out it wasn't me, but you know, seeing like my brother understood more so the Rodney King situation and other, you know, situations like that. So my parents had talks with him that I hadn't had yet because I wasn't mature enough to grasp it. And so, um, you know, I was put in a position where I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but they eventually, you know, we had those talks as I got older and I understood, you know, like when the police are there, you know, you got to be respectful and, mm-hmm. you know, almost like subsur- like submissive, you know, yeah. and, and when I grew up, I, part of me kind of resented that about my parents that they told me to be that way, but I appreciate it because I know that, you know, <laughs> when you start learning about racism, if you're too young and you don't know how to grasp what it means, what the history of racism means, you, you act in anger and you, you look at people differently and then you might become racist because you're not ready. You're not mature mm-hmm. enough to understand that information. And so if my parents hadn't told me to act that way with police, I might be in jail. Who knows? I, yeah. You know, just being upset at what I've seen happen to other black people. Maybe I act more aggressive when they come. So I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it gave me a chance to be free today and to learn uh, my rights and things like that and what can be said and what can't be said. And, you know, what to do when the police are there and understand that you don't have to be submissive, that you are a human being, you know, you are yeah. equal with them. If you've done something wrong, then you have to take responsibility for that also. Yeah. It's just so interesting given the fact that we are, you know, a similar age. And mm-hmm. I grew up in Colorado in a place that was the opposite of diverse, but I mean, literally the, probably one of the first things I ever learned as a kid from my family, from my community, from the schools that I went to was that racism was wrong, right? That it, that was like one of the core fundamental pieces of knowledge that I carried with me from a very young age. And like my high school, I think there was maybe four or five African-American people in the entire high school of 2000 people. And I mean, I went to public high school. It's not like this was a private school or anything like that, but just growing up in Boulder, it was just a very, um, I guess, homogenous place. There wasn't a lot of diversity, but still like the people who, who I grew up with knew enough to know that it was wrong, you know, that anybody who carried these moronic, um, you know, feelings of white supremacy or whatever it is are not worthy of having any kind of a conversation with, let alone, I mean, that those opinions, those viewpoints disqualify them from having an, an intelligent argument on any other, you know, subject matter, whether it's politics or social issues or anything. Right. And, 
you know, you lost your human card basically. <laughs> exactly. And, and also like just contrasting your experience from mine, you know, I actually got in trouble as a kid, you know, nothing ever serious, but like I did some stupid shit, you know, just kind of like partying, you know, just it being an idiot. And just looking back at that now about the things that, you know, those interactions that I had with the police, with law enforcement, benign as they were for me, could have turned out totally different had I not been from a middle-class white family, right? So, you know, it's just uh, something that as we grow older, you get a little bit more perspective. And especially in these moments in time, you're really confronted with what it's like, you know, and the differences of your experience versus my experience. And you wrote a really great article in Trail Runner, which I want to talk about here now uh, that I think was published yesterday or the day before, but it's a really awesome article. I commend you for writing it and I will link to it in the show notes so that everybody can and we'll have an opportunity to read it as well. But it's called No Change in Silence, which is a, also just a beautiful, I think, title for it. And, um, you know, in the article, you tell this story about an interaction you had when you were running. And much like the woman in Central Park, you asked right. somebody to, to leash their dog. Can you just tell that story really quick? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was only so much space to like tell, I guess, the full, the full details of that story. Yeah. But... Um, I guess, and then even, I think I, I even miswrote something. Like I said that, and I think I said at one point that he threatened to hit me with the leash. Yeah. Um, he did, he did actually swing it at me. So he yeah. like really did try to hit me. And that's when I was like, Oh, it's on now. Yeah. But, uh, so I guess start from, from the beginning. Um, you know, I'm running, you know, it's a park that I run in all the time and, you know, uh, most people lease their pets in this park. It's usually not an issue, but you know, us being mountain runners, like I didn't have like, I didn't live close to like single track, like steep stuff and that stuff. They had some of that like deer tracks in, in this park. And so sometimes you would see people in there with their dogs because they figured no one was around. And, and it's happened to me a few other times, right? Before this, where I was like, Hey man, like your dog, you need to get your dog under control. I'm not trying to get bit again. I'd have been bit like twice. Yeah. I don't want to get bit again. And, you know, sometimes, you know, people get mad. They might, you know, screw you, fuck off. Or, you know, they, they'll get yeah. mad at you. It's like, I'm not coming at you aggressive. I don't know what the issue is. But this dude, you know, I said, you know, I was, I actually was hot. So I imagine my tone was a little um, aggressive, maybe, <laughs> um, if I'm being completely honest. When his dog came at me, uh, it was trying to bite me. And I was like, I'm like backing up and I'm like, Whoa, he's like trying to bite me. Cause I thought he was going to try to play with me. And I'm like, you know, he's, he's aggressive. He's snarling. He's trying to bite me. And so I kick at it and I'm trying to kick, I'm trying to kick a field goal. You know, I'm trying to swing <laughs> for the fences for this dog. Cause I'm, I'm hot at this point. Yeah. And so finally he, he comes around the corner and his dog, he calls the dog over and I'm like, yo man, I was like, I just put my hands. I was like, Hey man, your dog's just trying to bite me. And you know, I said it loud. And I was like, you, you, your dog's supposed to be on a leash. And he, it just, boom, just, just started yelling and cussing at me. And I was like, whatever. And I just kept going by my way. And then I heard him call me the N word. And I was like, what? Yeah. And uh, I don't even know why I let it have so much power over me, but you know, I was young at the time. And um, I don't know. I think I was frustrated with the dog situation too. Like had it been any other situation, like just some dude, I uh, bumped him in the trail or something. And, 
you know, you wouldn't be as hot because it'd be like, oh, okay, that was an accident, you know, whatever. Yeah. You can call me what you want. I don't care. But I think I was hot because of the dog trying to bite me. And then the fact that he called me there. So then I was like, I approached him and I was like, hey, you know, uh, I was going to leave, but now I'm going to report you basically. Yeah. So the dude, <laughs> and I stayed way back, way away from him. I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, wherever you go, I'm going to report you. I was yeah. like, I don't have my phone, but I was like, we're going to come up on somebody who has a phone eventually. Yeah. So finally we see these ladies and they're coming, they're coming down the hill or whatever. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm about to get a cell phone right now. I'm going to let the police know who you are basically. So yeah. the dude gets mad and he starts, you know, he's calling me some other stuff, calling me N word again. So I'm like, okay. So then finally I didn't go to the ladies at that point. I'm like, you know what? I was like, leash your dog up to the tree and let's handle this like men. I was like, I'm tired of you calling me all this stuff. Yeah. So then the story get funny from here. So finally, you know, and I'm looking like a fruity, you know, I'm looking yeah. fruity. I got, I got, uh, uh, purple shorts on, <laughs> short, purple, <laughs> short purple shorts on, to keep, <laughs> and just like this tight white shirt. You know, it was just meant to be a quick little run. You know, I, yeah. I knew I, I had just got off work or something. It wasn't meant to be. I just threw something on, you know, yeah. stuff that was going straight to the dirty clothes when I got home. But, <laughs> you know, the dude, I, I'm sure he's looking at me like, oh, yeah, I'm a Lisa dog. I'm going to whoop your ass, yeah, yeah. basically. So then he, <laughs> he takes off his jacket, and I'm like, oh, damn, he's kind of big. So I was like, you know, well, I can't back down now. I haven't called him out, you know, and <laughs> so we got to do this. And uh, so I came up to him and no, and, and actually before that, initially he tried to hit me with the leash when I, when yeah, I yeah. called him out and he kept calling me that and I came up to him and he tried to hit me with the leash and I was like, yo, stop calling me, uh, you know, those, those names or whatever. And so then when he finally does put the dogs up and we about to fight, I'm like, I'm like I said, I was kind of scared. Cause I was like, Dang, you know, he's a lot bigger than I thought he was going to yeah. be when I got up closer to him. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've like I've, I've done martial arts and, I, I, you know, I've done boxing. You know what I'm saying? I know how to fight and I, yeah. and I don't fear anybody except maybe like Mike Tyson. I'm not getting in the ring with nobody like Mike Tyson or Errol Spence <laughs> or, or Mayweather. Yeah, nothing yeah. like that. You know, these guys are John crazy. Jones, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely not. So um, did he, he ultimately <laughs> like called the cops on you or? No. Oh, so, yeah. so. The ladies I was going to go grab the uh, phone from, they called the police. Because uh, they, 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 they recognized that this yeah, was getting saw, out of control. Yeah. yeah. And then my high school teacher, one of my, my former high school teacher was there too. Yeah. And so he's like, Joe, just leave it alone. You like, just ignore him. He's an yeah. idiot. And I'm like, at that point, I, I couldn't let it go. I was just like, yeah, man, yeah. he just, he won't stop calling me this. I can't let it go. And so then, um, you know, we start fighting. And, you know, he hit me one time, like I hit him and then he hit me and I was like, damn, boy, he got, he got some pot on him. So, but he could, he, I could tell he didn't know how to fight. Like yeah. from the way he swung, I was like, oh, okay. He's just a big dude, but you really don't fight yeah. and you just run your mouth. So then finally, you know, I get him a couple of times and then I get him in a guilty and, you know, he's sleeping and I popped him one more time cause I was still mad. And, um, you know, he, he gets up after my, like the teacher and, and the other ladies were like, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. And I was like, no, I'm not going to hit him no more. I was just, I was waiting. I was like, I'm yeah. still calling the police on you. I was like, I'm just, I'm waiting. I was like, I'm not going to try to kill the man. I was like, I yeah. put him down and I'm like, I need a cell phone. Let's get the police here. And they're like, they're coming. Uh, so then he sees the police, he runs. And I'm like, what is going on here? And he yeah. runs. Oh, he hit me. He hit me. He, he started telling him all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, so you ain't going to mention nothing about what you did. Yeah. And so even the lady, like the lady and my, my high school teacher, we all kind of look like what? 
and the cop like starts approaching me with the handcuffs. I'm like, hold up. Is that how it works? You just going to let him be free and yeah. handcuff me while he tells you his side of the story and he don't get no handcuffs and I'm the one handcuffed. And so, like I said, if the ladies didn't come around the corner, it would have been a wrap for me. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I would have gotten out of that situation. I think, you know, they would have cuffed me up and I probably would have been downtown. Yeah. And so ultimately they sort of endorsed your side of the story and, and the, the police kind of just told you guys to break it up and head your separate ways. But right. yeah, I mean, you, you didn't go into that much detail in the, in the article, but it, again, it's just like one of those situations where when you read it, you're just like, I cannot believe that somebody would, you know, would say that to somebody out, you know, running. It, well, it was just like so unprovoked. Like, yeah. I, I hadn't said but like two or three words to the man and he just went blah, 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 N-bomb. Blah, blah, N-bomb's like, yeah. oh. <laughs> I was just yeah. like kind of, at first I was like shocked because, you know, right. you don't hear that every day. You don't hear someone like calling you that every day. You hear, you know, other things, people mad at you, they might call you an a-hole or something yeah. like that. Or, I mean, or it's, sort of, it's sort of the most damaging, the most offensive thing that you could say to a black person in, in that situation. And of course, I'm sure he knew that as well. And who knows, the guy may have just been having a bad day. He may not have been a racist person as it seems this woman in Central Park doesn't seem to be like a truly racist person, but she knew that like, you know, calling the cops and saying, hey, a black person hit me or, or a, a black person is threatening me right. is like in some way, I guess, more provocative to the police or, you know, something that uh, puts her in a position of, of strength just strictly by virtue of the fact that she's, you know, a, a, a white person, which is crazy. So moving on kind of from that story, you tell a couple of other stories in the article that, uh, you know, you don't have to repeat here. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the article, I thought it was really interesting in that you said that you know, you had never shared these stories publicly before and that you right. thought that that was almost like a little bit cowardly or something like that. Can you explain that a little bit? Can you expand on why you felt that that was kind yeah, of cowardly? Um, I, I, so I have a cousin and, and, you know, he keeps me grounded and my mm-hmm. wife keeps me grounded too. So there's a, there's situations that happen in my life. Like and there's so many stories that I could have wrote about actually. I mean, yeah. it's sad. Like, <laughs> it's sad. I'm not even really that old, but it's like for me to have as many stories as I do, being the fact that I came up in this era, is kind of embarrassing for our country. But um man, I'm like, I just lost my point because I'm just like thinking about it. But <laughs> I'm just curious about like why you use that word, you know? Like why did you feel oh, like so, it was cowardly? Well, you know, in the article I talk about it how basically, you know, silence kind of cultivates like those ideas, that ideology, the race ideology that I'm against. And if I don't say anything, then, you know, I'm for it. Basically, if you remain silent, if, if me and you are in a, in a conversation and, and I'm talking to somebody and I say, you know what, uh, Burger King sucks and you don't say anything, then the other person can only assume if you with me and you don't have nothing to say, then Burger King does suck to you too. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing. Like if I'm a black American and I want all these racist issues and, and racial discrimination to, to evaporate from our country, uh, then I can't be quiet. You know, I have to share what I've gone through. I have to do something. I have to be active or else 
you know, I'm part of the problem just as much as the guy waving the Confederate flag talking about he don't like black people and they don't deserve this or that. It's like, I'm just as bad as him if I'm quiet about it. So in my mind, you know, some people maybe don't feel that way, but that's how yeah. I feel. I feel like, um, you know, you need to ex- exercise your rights, you know, as part of the constitution, I'm a citizen. So it yeah. is my job and my duty to make sure that, you know, I, I use the, I exercise those rights and, and, um, promote equality in our country whether that be for blacks, I'll, I'll, I'll promote it for anybody. Like right. if, if, if these stats existed for white people, I'll be the first to, to kneel. If a white person said I'm kneeling during the, I'll be the first to kneel yeah. with you. Yeah. Like it's, this ain't a thing. This is not just because I'm black. It's like, I don't like situations like this at all for anybody. I don't think anybody should be discriminated based on something they can't control. I can't control my skin color. I'm not right. going to bleach myself. I wouldn't want nobody to bleach you, so I wouldn't want you to paint yourself black. You know what I'm saying? I don't, that's not right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is the main lesson for me as well in this whole kind of crazy affair of the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I've felt similarly, you know, cowardly to use the the word that you used in my own personal experience because, you know, privately with family and friends, yeah, I'm very vocal about how I feel about certain situations, you know, especially like with Colin Kaepernick and, you know, the overt racism that is now like kind of ubiquitous in American politics. And it's just so crazy. And I had an, uh, an incident that happened a few months ago with my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, who's in a biracial relationship. And they went hiking in Berkeley, California. And, you know, they're out on a hike. My, um, my sister-in-law, her partner, who's a, a man of Indian descent, like a super impressive doctor, you know, a person who makes real contributions to the world right. and biracial children come back to the car to find it vandalized dirt all over the car with MAGA and swastikas and go home scrawled all over the windows. And I was so fucking heated when I learned about this I'm thing. I'm mad right now. I don't even know him and I'm mad. <laughs> and this happened, in, this happened in Berkeley, California, right? And I contemplated like posting about it, you know? And I, I ultimately, I didn't in the moment because I was so heated about it. And then ultimately, you know, it just sort of like fell out of my, you know, what I was thinking about that day. And so I, I never ultimately posted about it. And, you know, looking back, it's something that I'm actually pretty embarrassed about given the, you know, the current situation. And so I think that's been the biggest lesson for me over the course of these last couple of weeks is that it's just, it's done. That, that time is over now. Like we cannot, and especially people like me cannot like keep silent anymore. And it shouldn't be up to you to, I mean, use your voice. Absolutely. Like your article was amazing. And I hope you keep using it on social media, et cetera, where you're always great on the subject, but you know, it, it should be mostly up to people like me to, to be on your, be on your team. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I'm thankful for, you know, all the white athletes and, and white people who are not even athletes who have stood up against, you know, um, racism in our country, because Mm -hmm. me as a black person, if I just say something, then to a lot of people who are against that view will say, oh, he's complaining or it's unfounded. You know what I'm saying? Like they they will discredit you because 
no one else is supporting you except people that look like you. And when you only have one, when, when the minority is the only ones speaking out against it, then it's like nothing gets done. You know, it's like, it's like Kaepernick, right? Like, yeah. you know, it was him and a handful of other black athletes who knelt, right. you know, right. and I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm probably missing at least one example, but I can't remember any of the, you know, the white athletes in the NFL joining in solidarity. And that makes a difference, you know, like that makes a yeah, real difference, especially in a league that's, you know, you know, the vast majority of the athletes are African-American, but a hundred percent of the owners are, are white men. Yeah. So anyway, I, uh, I, I think that's like the ultimate thing that we need to sort of take from this incident, uh, moving forward is just being more, more vocal, you know, and not being cowardly to use, to use your words, but to, you know, actually step up to the moment and be, uh, be aggressive in that in that respect. So, you know, to talk specifically about George Floyd and, and police brutality, like what is your relationship been with law enforcement over the course of your life? Like, I imagine you've been pulled over before, like what's it like to be pulled over or to, you know, even have any kind of an interaction with a, with a police officer? What's, what's your mindset like in those environments? Um, you know, a lot of my experiences are influenced by uh, other black people that I've known who have gotten pulled over. The media is to blame for this, but a lot of black people, when they see cops pulling them over or, they, or they're being pulled over, they see the police lights. It almost like strikes you with a little bit of fear because it's like, oh man, I'm in trouble. Like you automatically know, like oh, I'm in trouble. Like it, it's a wrap for me. That's, it, that's just like automatically, even if you were doing nothing wrong, you know, like, you know, that you can't be that guy who says, what did I do officer? I didn't do anything. Like, you know, as a black person that those are the wrong things to say, yeah. if he pulls you over, like it's best that you just shut up and, and listen, cause you don't know how it's going in for you. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I've had some, some very bad experiences with, you know, law enforcement, but at the same time, I appreciate it because I understand like, that's a tough job. I have, um, you know, I did some of my internship work with, with the police department before and I respect them, but I do understand, you know, the fact is that the KKK has infiltrated, you know, police agencies around the, the country. You know, this is a fact. Um, this is something that the FBI knows. This is something that has been released and redacted statements from the FBI many, many times. Um, you know, and so, you know, when, when I say like, when I get pulled over, there's been a couple times where I got pulled over. And when a police officer says something to me that is definitely racist, right? Like one time in college, I got, we got pulled over. A friend of mine was driving. I'm in the back seat. I'm, you know, and the cop is pulling him out because he's in trouble. The driver's in trouble. Everybody's white in the car. I'm the only black guy in the car in Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, when the cop pulls, I, I'm in the back seat. I feel I'm afraid when the cop pulls over. But in reality, I should be safe. I have a white friend next to me, and he's hilarious. This guy, I mean, he, he'd be a great guy to have on a podcast talking about <laughs> these topics. Like for real, he's hilarious. Yeah. But he knows his politics. So I'm in the back seat with him, and he's like, you know, the cops telling us all to get out of the car. My friend's like, no, we're in the back seat. We're our seat belts are on. We don't have to get out. And I'm like. I'm looking at him I'm like, man, but he told us to get out, man. We need to get out. And I'm about to get out. He put his hand on my chest. He's like, Joe, don't do it. 
we don't have to get out. I know my rights. And so the cop is like going ballistic outside the window. Get out of the car. And he's like, my friend's like, nope, I know my rights. We don't have to get out of the car. And I'm like, you know, as a black person now, you got to yeah. remind, remember, we already kind of have fear when police yeah. are around. So I'm like, yo, man, what's going to happen? <laughs> I don't know what he's going to do. It's like, yeah. is he going to break the window open and mess us up? Like, are we going to get shot? So then um, finally, you know, I'm like, I was like, man, are you sure? I was like, do you know Oklahoma law or do you know like Oregon law? And so I'm <laughs> like, I'm like, let me get my phone out. I was like, I'm gonna call somebody, a lawyer that I know, and we're gonna figure this out. So then, you know, we're in college too, keep in mind. And so, you know, we've been drinking a little bit. We're in the back seats. Yeah. We're not driving, you know, drunk or anything. But then uh, I pick up my phone, the cop like flips out. He's like, who are you calling? And I'm like, I'm, I'm calling a lawyer. I'm trying to figure out what my rights are here because yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. And he like, he's like, you're calling your gangster homies on me or something. He's like, how do I know you're not calling? I'm like, I'm like, man, I'm wearing, I'm dressed yeah. like I'm going out for date night. What you mean gangster yeah. homies? Like I'm trying to figure out. Where, and it was so racially insensitive. And he, we finally, we got out of the car. He's super aggressive with all of us. I was like, I haven't said nothing to him. Keep in mind. I, yeah. I've been just besides that. I was like, I'm just calling a lawyer. That's all I said to him. So then he like flips out. He's all aggressive with me. And I'm like, Yo, how are you going to say something like that? Racially profiling me like that. He lets me go because people were coming around. Mm. And it's the same situation. Like, like I said, it's like an open wound that keeps getting jabbed. You see this, this situation with George Floyd. It's like, man, if cameras weren't around, he just got killed. A black man just got killed. And that's yeah. it. And the same thing with me. If there weren't other kids, other students around, other college kids that came around, people with cell phones, who knows what would happen to me? Yeah. Like, Maybe you would arrest me and said, oh, I did something else. And it's like, <laughs> when you are in a police station and you're getting booked, it don't matter what you think you did. It's all about what the cop says you did. And if he got another officer to back up what he said, it's it's done deal for you. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to do a little bit of time probably. Yeah. That's a good point about George Floyd. Yeah. Like if the camera wasn't running, you know, we wouldn't have this this moment in history that we're going through now where it feels like we finally are kind of getting approaching like a critical mass of support finally after so many of the these just blatant murders. Arbery. Yeah. Same thing with Arbery. Even yeah. wouldn't, those guys wouldn't be in jail right now. That's right. Yeah, exactly. It, right. it already took them long enough with video evidence. Yeah. So Joe, you're a father now you have one child, two kids. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, boy and a girl. Oh, you, so you have two kids now yeah. and you live in Colorado Springs, a town without a ton of diversity. So what kind of example are you trying to set for them as, as they grow into a world that clearly hasn't made as much progress as we'd thought? <laughs> um, you know, I want to instill in them the value of judging people by their character. That's how I was raised. Like, don't say, I don't like this person because they look this way. That's not something they can control, you know. Mm -hmm. um, don't judge people by that. Judge them by what they say and who they are, what they do. You know, that's that's the number one thing that I want to instill in my children is, mm -hmm. is not to be uh, discriminative in that way. You know, you can discriminate in terms of like, um, you know, maybe this person's into a different lifestyle and I'm not hanging out with those kind of people, you know, sure. Mm -hmm. um, but based on skin color, like, nah. Of and course. then, you know, also to just to accept other views too. Uh, I think there have been periods of time in my life where I've came across people who don't um, accept other views and not, and I'm not talking about racial views. I'm talking about like, you know, there's people who say, oh, well, this represents this for me. 
And then you say, no, it doesn't, you know, like understand that we can have a conversation. There can be a dialogue and you can be that way. And I can be this way, but I still got love for you and you got love for me and, and we can move forward. But, you know, when it comes to racial injustices and, you know, societal issues, I, I feel like it's not, it is black and white. There's nothing in between, you know, and I feel like we, we try to create people who are against it, right. Against progressing our society or, or against, you know, ending racism or, or ending discrimination in our country. They try to create a bigger gray zone. They mm-hmm. try to dilute the message or, or blur the message. You know, we saw this with Kaepernick. Oh, he's just, he, he's doing it because of the flag. It's like, he ain't never said nothing about the flag. He ain't never said nothing about the anthem. He said he's doing this, you know, for a specific reason. Yep. But people blur, you know, they blur it. Like, you know, yeah. even the situation with the looting, right? These people are not protesting <laughs> for the same reasons that yeah. protesters are protesting. They want to delete the message. They want you to forget about George Floyd. Oh, look at us looting. Focus on that. You know, yep. it's like, no, that's not what this is about. It's a great point. So, Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you being a young father and, and having two young kids, who will likely grow up in a town where they look different from most of the people that they go to school with. Like, it's just important to, yeah, like have a strong family who sort of like has that moral compass and you growing up in kind of a similar environment, um, you know, will will help your kids to, to be successful. Hopefully we'll, we'll make a, a bit more progress before, before they're our age. But it's interesting. I, I heard, uh, Bomani Jones, who's one of my, my favorite sports media personalities and also ta Coates, who's, you know, probably the best writer on, you know, the subject of, of race, of, of our generation. And I heard them both this week, like express sincere hope, like that the, these movements, these protests that we've seen pop up, not only all over the country, but also in a lot of, you know, places around the world has actually given them hope for, for the future. Um, do you feel similarly hopeful when you see these, these protests go on? Yeah. Yeah. Especially when I see the the demographics, like, yeah. It's old, young, all kind of colors. It looks like a rainbow out there. So yeah. I definitely am hopeful. And I think if if we didn't see these protests, then I think when people protest, it's because they believe in change. They yeah. believe that something can be changed. If we didn't see protests, then I would be very worried about the state of our country. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm already a little concerned, but like <laughs> I'm less concerned because I'm like, wow, like uh, just the... the the different faces you see out there protesting, they believe that something can be changed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we're going tonight here in, in Portland. And, uh, I think it's probably my first protest experience in my life, which again, just makes me feel like, you know, bathed in privilege, you know, as somebody who's just lived such an easy life to, to finally get to go and, and, you know, be in solidarity with, with the community and, um, with the values that you and I, uh, and millions of other people actually believe in. It's going to be uh, powerful and awesome, but, um, how can people like me, Joe, how can people who've grown up with every advantage that comes with, you know, being a middle-class white kid in the United States growing up in the eighties and nineties, how can we be better advocates for our African-American neighbors? How can we help navigate this moment in history? Um, you know, I think that the biggest thing is 
when you hear somebody say something out of pocket, like racist or discriminatory, uh, to make sure you correct them. And, and, and before that, you need to be knowledgeable about the situation. Like, what is discrimination? Like, what is mm-hmm. racism? What's the history of it? What, what are the, the big proponents that have created racism in our country? And one of the big things I feel a lot of people lack, right, is the conversation comes up about, like, you'll hear, hear people say, oh, black people kill black people. They kill black people. Black people kill black people by and large. And it's like, understand where that comes from, understand the history of that. And like, for example, understand the housing, the fair housing act, like how that, you know, what implicated, yeah. you know, because yeah. what grew from that. It's like, yeah, I could take uh, wealthy white kids from the upper echelon of America today, take 200 of them, mm-hmm. put them in the same situation as black families before the fair housing act. And guess what? we will have white on white violence yep. <laughs> in about 15 years yep. <laughs> and they'll be killing each other. And, and it's like, when you pretty much don't allow economic mobility and you don't have fair ways for people to move up or, or get mortgages and, and better their living, yeah, they're going to kill each other. I don't care who they are. They could mm-hmm. be, they, you could get the most Christian neighborhood in the world and put them in the same situation and put their homes, build project housing, give them really bad, living quality and, and far away from good jobs. And guess what? And put them in food deserts. They'll be killing each other very soon. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll find, they'll find ways to justify it. Oh, you know, they'll use the Bible to justify it. <laughs> it's yeah. like when you put people in bad situations, they find a way to justify it. And it's like, we have pushed poverty on black America, sadly in our country. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, the, the lack of knowledge about that history is what the problem is with my generation, kids of my age. We don't, I'm, I guess we, I understand a lot about it, but I, I'm still learning and I still need to learn more. But there are a lot of kids who don't even understand just the little things like like what what happened, what precipitated from the fact that the Fair Housing Act didn't exist before? Like, what does that do to a community? Mm-hmm. What, is it, what, do you, what does it do to a community when, when they're living in bad situations for long periods of time? You know, what is, what is due to a community when, you know, <laughs> you take a big population of, of, of black people who left slavery and just say, Hey, get with nothing. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's no opportunity. You can't get a job. You, you weren't even considered a citizen in that time. It sets back your generation so far. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> black people might be doing okay in 30 years from now, but they're not doing okay right now. You know, like mm-hmm. it's going to take a lot of time. Yeah. So, you know, to me that just, again, kind of goes back to this concept of like owning, owning your privilege and using it for good, right. For people like me, I mean, you know, like, as you mentioned, you know, the things that I've done with prison uh, volunteering, um, that's really the first time in my life where I was fully confronted with how lucky I had been. And again, like as somebody who kind of fancied himself as a a pretty, you know, open-minded, compassionate and, you know, inclusive type person to go into a prison for the first time and to develop relation, like really close relationships with people who grew up in a totally different environment who had none of the advantages that I did and, but who were genuinely good human beings, right. Who 
because of their life circumstances to a large degree, of course, a lot of them made big mistakes along the way, but, but you know, they're just, they're normal people. And had I been born in the same environment, there's, there's absolutely a great chance that I would be in the same situation as them. And yeah, like it's, it's hard for me as again, like somebody who's lived in very white areas my entire life, like the, the African-American people that I'm closest with in my personal life are in fucking jail, which is like not cool, you know? (laughs) And, um, so, you know, again, just going back to this concept of like, what can we do, you know, to be better advocates? It's just like, use this privilege that we have this, like this advantage that we were given to like actually help, you know, and for us, that's going to be, you know, going to the protest tonight in in solidarity. So, um, much appreciated. Yeah. Well, Joe, like we've been talking race now for a while and it's uh, it's a heavy subject and I appreciate, I appreciate all your, your insight on this, you know, and it's like, I want to talk about your career now too, because like I've wanted to talk to you for a long time and connect with you athlete to athlete, person to person and have you on the podcast. And I feel bad that like, you know, the, the race thing is kind of like the, the main, um, you know, motivator to do it. So I want to talk about your career now, if you're okay with that. you know, you've had a ridiculous career, you know, we sort of came up in same generation trail running. I've obviously focused on long stuff, but you've amassed like an a, a amazing resume over the last 10, 12 years doing it. Two-time mountain running world champion, four-time Xterra world champion. You got what, like 16 five. US? I think it's five. Five-time Xterra champion? Yeah, one time they call it. One time it was a tie. Oh, they right, 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 right. Anyway, so like you're one of the best short course mountain runners, you know, the U.S. has ever produced, you know, with maybe the exception of Matt Carpenter, I would say you're you're probably the best. What were your goals this year before the coronavirus, you know, sort of happened? And what do you have planned now? Do you have any races or projects going Um, on? Not really. You know, at this point, you know, I'm testing some products for Casio and you know, we're working on that and um, going to have like kind of a, a release date of some new stuff coming out and working on some new things with them and, you know, just testing product. But, you know, before the coronavirus, I had intended to, to do a couple of races and I um, wanted to go back overseas this summer and do a couple of the races that I've done in the past. And, um, and even I, I was debating whether I want to do <clears throat> pikes again. I didn't know if I was going to do it for sure because you know, one of the big races that I like to do is the Dolomite Man. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, they don't like you, you know, part of the, the agreement is that you don't do like long races before that because it is a team event. So they don't uh, want yeah. you to like screw over your teammates. Um, so, I, and, and it's an event that I, I find, you know, really competitive and just, just a fun course and, and a good time. And it's a team event. I love team events. And so I was definitely looking forward to going back there. And, you know, I wanted to go, you know, back to the GoPro games and, uh, even want to go from Mount Washington mm-hmm. um, where, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Carpenter has been there a number of times. I think he kind of inspired, you know, guys like yeah. me and Sage to go there uh, back in the day. So yeah, I wanted to go back there and um, go after the, see if I could break my American record there. Yeah. But, uh, didn't get that opportunity. And there was a couple of the races that I have on the calendar, but now 
you know, it's kind of hard. Like I almost don't want to write down anything on the, on the yeah. counter because I don't want to have to like cancel stuff. And, you know, like it's really frustrating. Yeah, it is. I mean, just like the unknown of like when things are going to happen again. Have they canceled bikes yet? They canceled the ascent. Yeah. So the marathon may happen, although unlikely, I'm sure. Did they cancel the world mountain running championships? Cause I thought I saw that they just posted the course of. Yeah, no, they, that is so late. It's like, oh. but honestly, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they did cancel it. Right. Cause yeah. it's, a, it's like on a small Island. They probably don't want a bunch of people coming from around the world, getting yeah. everyone sick there or the potential of getting everyone sick there. So I, I don't know. I wouldn't keep my fingers crossed on that one. Where, where is that one this year? It's in Lanzarote. Uh, yeah. Canary yeah. Islands. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's hope. Um, yeah. I was in the Canary Islands in, uh, March and had to rush home from there as all the lockdowns oh, happened. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a weird year in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, hopefully we'll have something to keep us busy here throughout the, what uh, are you gonna, what's next for you? Oh, dude, I'm in the same position. I'm in the same position, but yeah. I want to talk about your, uh, your world championship at the, at the mountain running, uh, the world championship there last year in Patagonia where you won for the second or second time. I think you won in 2016 as well. You won by only a couple of seconds. I want you to kind of, I haven't heard you talk about what happened in that race and like maybe break down how that race went for you and what it was like to be the world champion again. Um, it, it was a very emotional race for me because like I had, um, just come off of a long injury earlier in the year. And so it was kind of like slow going for me for a big chunk of the year. Um, you know, I was struggling just to not struggling to get fitness. It was still, it was coming, but you know, it was slow. Like it takes a while when you've not yeah. been doing anything and, and trying to gain fitness. And so, you know, a couple of my early races, I won them, but just didn't feel good. Just, you know, even at Pikes, right? Like I, I was racing to get a good time at Pikes Ascent this last year. I had a big lead when we got to bar camp and I realized I wasn't going to run what I wanted to. And it was like frustrating. I just kind of shut it off. Yeah. It was like out of frustration. I was like, you know, I don't feel like running anymore. And you know, that happens to every runner at some point in their career, but it was like, it was very frustrating for me. But then it was like the next race right after that, like things start to click. And so going into the world championships, you know, I still didn't have the confidence that I could win, especially with, how strong some of these other guys were looking coming into the race. And, you know, it was really competitive this year. You know, Italy had a really dope team and um, the Czech Republic had a dope team. You know, there's a lot of guys in Europe who are really good. We had some good guys on the U.S. team. So it was like anything could have happened. Um, you know, when the gun went off before the race, I was hoping that the weather would be bad and the, the weather was bad. And so I was thankful for that. When we got through kind of the first muddy section and I started to kind of pull away a little bit from the, the pack, I could tell, I was like, you know, I'm going to win today. Like I kind of knew at that point, I was like, I just couldn't see my, like I couldn't visualize myself losing. Yeah, and then wow. we got to the river crossing and I fell and <laughs> I lost my lead. Like I turn around 10 seconds yeah. later, I'm like, Damn it. The guy, he was like right there on me. I was like, how did he catch me that fast? And, uh, so then on, we were on the descent at that point. And so then I pulled away from him on the descent. So, uh, then again, I got confident and we kind of got that back down to the muddy section, like where you're about to, you're about 2k from the city or from the finish. And I just, I remember just feeling like, 
like confident just knowing that you know i had something left if i needed yeah. it and so it was it was a good feeling man you know when things work out and you feel good you know it's it's just amazing it's a blessing yeah. but like it could have been the other way around and when he caught me the second time it could have been like you know i've given all i've had and i'm tired yeah. and it's a wrap for me but uh you know i felt good and then just winning that was like real special because you know i dedicate that win to my son um big time i'm I'm gonna actually get like a shadow box with with all the stuff from that one of my friends good friends is making and i want to put my son a picture of my son there because you know when i was injured and just kind of uh, depressed and just like sad about everything yeah. um and not knowing if i could come back you know I, I remember just looking at my son and just being like damn i gotta do it for my son like i can't i can't go out like no sucker you know like i gotta yeah. do something that's gonna make him proud when he looks back on his father so oh that's you know, so that's yeah, so cool oh that's awesome man good for you yeah it was uh awesome to sort of observe that race or just like, you know, catch up on the, uh, the results online and see the photos of you and, uh, and Grace and Murphy winning the, uh, the yeah, women's Grace race as well. Yeah. You guys just made us all super proud and like you have such incredible range in, in your racing. And I want to talk about your, uh, your launch to ultra running hopefully, but <laughs> the, um, that race specifically, like I, I had heard some rumors that you may have jumped in the long course race as well, which I think was the day after or two days later. Did you contemplate doing that at all? And if, if so, why, why did you decide against it? No, I, I did actually want to do it, but I think when I won, just being on that high, I was just yeah. like, and then also just being kind of beat up. I don't know. Yeah. I was just like, I didn't realize that course was going to, we had bad weather. I think that's the thing. Mm -hmm. If the weather days had flopped and they had our weather and we had their weather, I think I could have potentially done it. But, you know, being that it was kind of mucky out, uh -huh. you know, and you're sliding around and running through the water, you know, I think it changed how I felt like later on that day a yeah. little bit. And no, I wanted to do it, but I was like, man, I don't see why a reason why they, they don't need me to be there. I think they can win it without yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and they almost did. I think they, they didn't lose by what, what, maybe one point or something. Well, I mean, for me, it was like, oh, this would be so sweet to see Joe and Jim Walmsley face off in the World Mountain yeah. Running Championship. And I mean, obviously, you guys had, or the U.S. had Hayden Hawks in the field, Mario Mendoza. Can't recall who else was on the team, but right. um yeah, I mean, when I had heard a rumor that you were going to maybe run the long course race too, I was like, oh, not only would it be so cool for him to double up and be double world champion, short course, long course, but also Man, I'd lo love to see uh, you and Walmsley go at it at a, at a distance that I think probably suits both you guys to a, to a certain degree. So may, maybe some other time down the road. Yeah, I mean, man, it would have been cool. I mean, he could have ran the classic and then that would have been dope. <laughs> we would have had, cool had a really good team. I think, yeah. I think we lost by a point maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think we are the, as a team. Yeah. Because you guys, you guys got second. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the U.S., I think was second place in both races. I could be wrong about that. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but yeah. we had three world champions and you and Jim and and uh Grayson Murphy. So right. that's a, a pretty successful show. It would have been tough to double back like just the day after. Like if I had a day in between, you know, go, like, like I respect Jim. Jim's he's a strong runner. Like it totally. I couldn't just go in and be yeah. tired or something like that or win a of race like that, that caliber yeah. tired, you know, it would have been tough. I do think I would have done really well. Uh just I would prefer to race. If I'm going to race somebody of that caliber, I want to make sure that it's an honest effort. Yeah. Cool. 
you know, and I feel like I said, I felt as obviously in hindsight, you feel like, damn, maybe I should have done it. They only lost by a point, but yeah. at the same time, you know, I'm not Superman, you know, I can't do everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of, um, yeah, your eventual face off maybe with, with Jim and, and other athletes who we'd love to see you race. I know yeah. you've been asked this a million times about, you know, jumping up to doing some more long races, ultra races. And like your range is so good as it is. Like, I, I mean, you even won the club cross country championship, you know, what a few years ago, you've basically done everything you can do in the U S at least and a lot of things internationally and multiple world championships, um, at the short course racing, like when do you think you might, uh, you know, may, or do you ever envision yourself maybe devoting an entire season to doing like ultra races? Um, probably not. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I do, I've done some ultra races. Like I, I did, I, I just, I it's have. not a focus, you know, like, I, I guess it's have. not been a focus for me. Yeah. Um, Why not though? It's, you just prefer the, the short stuff more so? Well, not even just that, like earlier in my career, I just realized like, I wasn't going to get the same like sponsorship support as uh, some of the other athletes. And so like, I didn't have the privilege to focus on races that weren't going to be financially lucrative for me. Ah, uh. And so it, it definitely change the trajectory of my career i would say yeah. um but then you know when it gets to when you what it boils down to is i do like competition i do like racing yeah. east africans and things like that which i think you know some of the best runners in the world come from that part of the world mm -hmm. and you know they're doing the classic mountain racing distance and they're doing you know the sub ultra stuff so for me i'm like i want to race the best guys like i don't want to go do you know there's a lot of ultras but it's very diluted where yeah. i could go just win a, an ultra and you can just get famous off of that or something. It's like, if I did it for the fame, then that would make sense. Yeah. But I do it because I want to test myself. I want to race people, you know, who are pushing it, pushing mm -hmm. the limit, who are the best in other genres. And, and it's kind of, you know, in the short mountain racing, you see a diverse field of athletes, like, and not even just, I'm not talking about like where they're from, but in terms of their abilities. Yeah. Um, and I love that about the sport. So, and then also like, it is more financially lucrative you know, to do the shorter stuff. Yeah. Cause you, you can race more. There's what well, you, you go to races that have prize money. Yeah. And, and then uh, just, just more, I think more money, you know, for the time, you know, yeah. like what you're doing, you're getting paid more for the time. And then, you know, on top of that, I do, I raise money, um, for the candlelighters of Southern Colorado, mm -hmm. which is a childhood cancer center. So I want to make money obviously for that. Cause that's something that, you know, I stand by and I'm committed to that. And then also, you know, I am a father, I have a mortgage, you know, like I'm not going to be out there just racing for nothing. I don't, you know, yeah. nobody works for free and I don't want to work for free. Yeah. So. yeah no, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, <laughs> you know, of course I, I want to continue to kind of like pester you and push you in the direction of doing ultra races, because I, I think, you know, now much more so than when you and I both kind of came into the sport of running, you know, kind of at a professional level is, you know, the ultra distance races, I think you can earn a, a living, like at, at your level, you can earn a living probably to a similar degree. Although, you know, I'm not entirely sure what the economics of it are with the sub ultra stuff that you focus on, but yeah. like, you know, for me, you know, and you talk about the depth of competition, right. And, East Africans and 
really, yeah, just like solid, talented fields at all these races that you go to. Of course, it is a little bit more diluted. We don't have as much density of competition in, in ultra racing, but you could focus on like a race like UTMB or something, which is much longer than you probably want to do. But I mean, that, that those fields are world-class, you know, with incredibly good, competition where you right. you as a as a world-class athlete yourself would would not have an easy time winning although i think you right. would do i think you would do amazingly i think you I, you know i think the fact too is that you i don't like the qualifying process either yeah like i feel I was, like that that hurts competition i was you just know, gonna any say race, any race yeah. that does that like even you look at you know mountain marathon and stuff like yeah. that like if you have this really crazy process to get athletes in the race you're not going to get the best athletes to come so even Mount Marathon, I, I hadn't even thought about that as being a race yeah. for you. Is there's yeah, a call? They, they don't, they don't, you know, there's not an elite field. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, you, you have to like apply or something. This, this, it was a longer process than I was used to. I was like, you know, I'm not asking for um, <laughs> a comp entry or nothing. I was yeah. like, you know, I'll pay my own way to get there. I'm not yeah. asking for nothing. It was just like too complex. And I was like, well... <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> yeah, that's another race where I would absolutely love to see you run. And they yeah, have, man, they have amazing coverage. Have you watched the uh, the live coverage that they do for that race? I saw it. Yeah, one, like maybe four or five years ago. I definitely it was, saw it. It was like on Twitter so or Oh no, I mean they have full on TV crews now. It's gotten a lot better. You know, what I'm like, saying it was like somebody had it yeah. on Twitter. I don't know, like they were just showing clips from it, and I was watching. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll have to uh, we'll have to hit up Ricky Gates and have him use his connections know, to get yeah. you in that race because that would I, be I, awesome. I didn't think about it like the fact that I know Ricky. I was like, man, I probably should have just. Yeah. But I didn't want to do that because I felt like I don't know, man. I didn't want to like use like some type of privilege of knowing someone to, of to course, bump yeah, someone yeah. off the list. Like, yeah. if they have an elite field and they want the best athletes there, then that's one thing. If that's if mm-hmm. it's a race that does that, but I don't want to like move myself up above someone just because I know Ricky or, you know, <laughs> or if I was just because, you know, like if I was a Solomon athlete, I'm sure I would have had the end, you know, like, cause yeah. it seems like they get in their yeah. top guys get in like easy. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, if I was a Solomon guy, maybe I could have just, you know, got yeah. in real easy. Yeah. The, well, and like speaking of Solomon, like the golden trail series too, is something that I totally envision like would be perfect for, for Joe gray and somewhere that probably would be, you know, pretty financially lucrative as you say. And, um, anyway, I, I don't want to like try and push your career in a direction that you don't want it to go, but there's so many races that I would love to see Joe gray racing, you know, because yeah. to me, like, you're one of the great athletes of our generation of, of off-road running. And a lot of people still don't really know who you are. I mean, obviously like those of us who are, who pay attention and who are really connected do, but not to the same degree that like, you know, people who, who only focus on ultra running, you know? And uh, so anyway, I just view your talent as being so like, wide ranging and your, your abilities at different distances would, would translate really well to these other races that, um, yeah. you know, we'd love to see a race in, but yeah, um, definitely. I'll do some, I mean, there's a lot of classic events that, that I love doing. Like, I mean, Sears and all's yeah. was one that I would have liked to go back to, which but, is yeah. on the golden trail series. Yeah. 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 I yeah. would have liked to go back to that. I mean, you know, I have my issues with the golden trail in terms of their lack of real drug testing 
Uh, uh, that, that really does bother me a little bit. The fact that they're using this BS system and, you know, yeah. it's just, it's bogus. Well, Joe, I mean, uh, I feel like we could talk forever and, uh, you know, I'd love to get you back on and kind of, uh, once we're all racing again, you know, and you're, and you're back at dominating the world to, uh, to go over some of those accomplishments and talk in more depth about your career, but having, uh, having taken an hour of your time, <laughs> I really, I really appreciate you, you spending the time and using your platform the way that you are right now. I think it's really, really important. And again, I'm going to encourage everybody to read the article that you published with trail runner, um, this week. And, um, yeah, I appreciate, you know, all the work that you do and, uh, keep using your voice and, uh, let us know how we can help. Okay. Yeah, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, as always, man, um, thank you for, for the platform and, and wishing you the best, you know, as you return to racing as well this year. Oh, yeah. Thanks again to Joe. That was awesome. Follow Joe online at Joe Jeezy on Twitter and Instagram. Love that handle. Also check out that article, which we referenced a few times, called No Change in Silence, published at trailrunnermag.com. And yeah, reach out to Joe, let him know you appreciate his work on this difficult subject matter. And let's all be teammates with Joe and each other as we make the world a better place. Okay. Talk to you soon.